Hello, welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Batak. Today, we're looking at why American mothers are screaming on the inside. I can't wait to bring in our guest to discuss the reasons and some solutions that she discovered when she interviewed over 100 mothers for her book. For me, it feels like a lot of this pressure comes from the fact that we're constantly bombarded by messages about what's ideal, what's perfect, the right way to do something, the right way to mother. And then we're left to our own devices to figure out how to achieve that success, which can be very stressful. And sometimes I scream not just on the inside, but on the outside. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce our guest, Jessica Gross. She is a journalist, an author, and opinion writer at the New York Times. She writes a newsletter about many topics, but has a focus on parenting, which led to her book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. Welcome, Jessica, to the Health Discovered podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited for our discussion, but as I do with a lot of our guests, I really like to get to the aha moment. So what was it that was happening in your life when you came to the realization? Is there a story that you needed to write this book? I think there's two moments. The ideas for this book really started percolating in my brain when I was pregnant with my older daughter. I was very sick with hyperemesis, which is extreme nausea and vomiting during pregnancy. And I sort of, as a result, got extremely anxious and depressed. And I just was not capable of continuing to work at the job I was working at at the time. And in that moment, I realized that even though I was incredibly privileged in many ways, there was still this fundamental incompatibility with motherhood as we know it in the United States and the working world and the structures that are supposed to be supporting us. So that was one moment. And then the inciting moment for writing the book was obviously 2020. And everything that happened during that year for everyone, but I think particularly for parents, when all of the structures of our lives fell away, when our kids could no longer go to school or be in care, and we were still expected to do everything all of the time, often in the same moment. I have this memory of the summer of 2020 where I was moving laundry from the washer to the dryer. I was listening to a conference call on mute in my headphones and my kids were yelling in the background because they wanted lunch because it was probably noon and they were hungry. And I just felt like I was being pulled in every direction in that minute and that it was just not sustainable. Those were the two kind of big moments. But in the seven years between my pregnancy with my older daughter and starting to write the book in 2020, I really started reporting more on the ideas, thinking more about the ideas, developing the ideas, and talking to just tons of parents across the country in an ongoing way. So two things resonate with me. First, having these moments in the laundry room that absolutely happens to me as well. Or if you don't have a laundry room, which I don't, it just happens when you're folding laundry or looking at it, which is also something that brings me a lot of stress. But then the fact that you're talking specifically about American mothers, and is there something unique to what we're living and experiencing in the U.S. compared to other countries? 
I think compared to many of our peer nations, so when I say that, I mean other countries that are as wealthy as we are and have as much material goods as we do. We are the only ones that do not have universal health care. We are the only ones who don't have any national form of paid parental leave. We have less support in terms of subsidized child care. So I do think that there is a way where American mothers are fundamentally and materially less supported than moms in other countries. I hear often from international readers who just are confused. They're like, wait, you have to go back to work when? But you're not even healed from giving birth. And they're just shocked, um, honestly, about what we're sort of coping with. And that's just from day one. That's why I wanted to focus on American mothers specifically. Also, it's just obviously such a big topic and I needed to refine it in some sort of way. And I find international comparisons actually really fascinating and, and really helpful just in terms of thinking about solutions and ways in which we can help. There are many obvious ways that we can improve motherhood and parenting in the United States that we are not yet doing. So what are some of those things? One thing, obviously, like I said, just paid parental leave. Even as I was writing the book, we are moving forward on it on a state level, if not on a federal level. So in the two years between starting to write the book and doing edits on the book and the book coming out, two more states passed paid parental leave. And even since the book has come out, another state has passed paid parental leave. So we are moving forward incrementally, but there's millions and millions of people who live in the states that don't have any of the paid leave coverage. And we're leaving it up to corporations to provide that for people. And it's just not enough. I think another thing is fixing postpartum care. I think all the time about how in many countries, nurses will come to your house every week, every couple days for that first month or two. And just to check in and make sure that nursing is going okay, that you're emotionally doing okay, that you have the supports that you need. And just that sort of hands-on support is so unusual in this country. I mean, again, to bring it back to the lack of universal health care, Medicaid expansion happens when you're pregnant, but I believe, and you can correct me if this is wrong, it's 60 days after most mothers get dropped from the rolls of Medicaid. And so they're not getting postpartum care that they need. And some of them are, not to be overdramatic, but some of them are dying as a result of not having care for a year after they give birth. And again, it seems so obvious, but it's just having that sort of baseline medical care that is table stakes in many, many countries around the world, I think will help many, many moms and many parents in general. That's really actually heartening to hear that there's some movement, at least at the state level, because what concerns me, especially a lot of the things that happened during the pandemic 2020, so now almost three years ago, it feels like there was this bubbling up, this momentum towards really systemic change. And now we're kind of back to it. And it's like back and more and faster and sometimes I wonder if we are carrying forward with some of those lessons. So it's really interesting that at least at the state level, in some states, some things are progressing in the right direction. And I really do try to write about moments that are positive and it's not as sexy as, you know, stories of division and polarization 
we might be missing some of these more positive stories that are happening because they are not exciting. They're not explosive. But I think more and more people are talking about this. And I see people of all political backgrounds really highlighting these things as problems and issues to solve and that there is more bipartisan cooperation and talk is cheap. We want to see action, but especially in the legislative process, it just takes time. And so even though would I have liked to see faster, more, of course, but I really still do feel fairly optimistic about the direction we're going in. And it's really great to have your perspective because I think of myself as a messenger one-on-one in the clinic. So in that setting, I can see what's playing and, you know, do I need to take a different tap? Do I need to change the story or are we connecting, first of all? And then after that, can we go upstream of any conflict? So if you don't agree with what I'm saying, can we go upstream to something we can agree on, like around the vaccine discussion? Oh, well, we both want to keep your child healthy. Okay, so then we can sort of play it together until we come to a resolution that is, in my mind, successful. I'm really fascinated by what you do. You're writing to just a large audience. So you're messaging to people where you can't necessarily change that message in real time, but you're still getting across this very important information. So how do you think about that? How do you think about messaging to large swaths of the population? What works? I think what works is speaking in a way that is respectful even to people that you don't agree with and making it clear that you understand their perspective even if you don't agree with it and you're not belittling it, you're not dismissing it out of hand, that you're simply trying to get at some sort of truth and that you're willing to be open to people who disagree with you for whatever reason. And again, just in every argument I make, I always try to consider the other argument. And any research I have ever read about trying to convince people of anything, shaming them doesn't work. Yelling at them does not work. I think that that is so important. And it's something that feels like it's lacking sometimes in the messaging towards mothers. I mean, I think that's where a lot of the pressure comes from because there's this messaging that this is the right way to do something or this is going to be the ideal way or the safe way. And if you're not doing it that way, whether it's breastfeeding or whether it's sending your children to a particular type of school or how you're managing their ADHD or the personal care products that you're putting on your body or your child's body, a lot of that messaging doesn't have that same kind of lack of judgment. That's right. And I think the problem is that the research is not always as clear as we would like it to be. And it's always at a population level and can't do the gold standard studies of double blind controlled studies on pregnant women and postpartum women. You have to just do observational studies. So things like, oh, you know, you should breastfeed for X amount of time. Yes, in an ideal world, that is true. But that doesn't mean that the alternative is that your child is permanently damaged and will never recover and you're a terrible mother. So I think it's hard to get across these sort of health recommendations with the nuance that the alternative isn't a disaster. I will say also, I think in a lot of ways, we're just overthinking everything. 
I think especially with the zero to five age range, obviously some kids have complex needs and I'm not trying to be dismissive of that at all, but kids without those complex needs, we don't have to overthink what kind of milk we're ser- like every single little decision won't actually matter as much as we fear that it might. And I want to release people from that worry if I possibly could, if I have one goal. Yeah, I think that is what a lot of the moms and friends and people I speak with, whether they're mothers or not, it feels like these decisions are so high stakes when really we're so resilient as families and as mothers and that there is still always going to be opportunity to correct or for our bodies to correct mistakes or for our relationships to be corrected. Exactly. And my kids are seven and 10. And I realized that the day-to-day little things that happened when they were newborns didn't really matter so much, even if they felt like they mattered so much in the moment, and that they are so deeply themselves. I actually find that to be one of the great joys of being a mother is watching them become who they are. And certainly I can help them get there and play a role in their development. But so much is just they are who they are in a way that is amazing. And I love getting to see them learn and grow and figure stuff out. It's just a real delight. So I think it can really take the anxiety away to realize you only have so much control over what they're going to become or the qualities that they have. I'm glad you discovered that with your second child. It took me till my third one where I'm finally like, oh, my goodness, they're all different. Oh, wow. Okay, I can't coerce you into any. This is just who you are. And I I totally agree with you that the joy that comes from don't want to say lowering expectations, but just changing what the expectations are for you as a mother or as a professional person or as someone who's trying to balance all of these things. And it seems so, you know, it's a mindset shift, but it's like, That was sort of my aha moment, I think, just realizing how different they all are. And for me, with COVID, being able to have a little bit of a step back and being pregnant during COVID and being able to be at home for a lot of it, it just kind of really helped me to shift this perspective and feel less pressure around things. If we can take anything away from the difficulty of the past couple of years, it's that Only the big things really matter. Our families, our communities. When we were all isolated away from each other, it was such a loss in so many ways. What are some of the empowering stories that you heard and some of the things that you found to be good ways of messaging things to large swaths of people? I think one of the problems that we all have on many topics, but I think parents in particular, is we are just getting this fire hose of information all the time. And it's conflicting and we don't know who to trust. And it is very hard to triage. And I think we all saw that during the pandemic in terms of health recommendations. I mean, we were all just, you know, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to behave? I think especially in a weird way at the beginning, it was easiest because the recommendation was just like, don't go anywhere, don't do anything. That's very straightforward. I wrote about this at the time. I struggled to weigh the risk of many activities in that sort of pre-vaccine, but post-lockdown period. It's just like, well, I really want my kids to be able to see their friends in the safest way possible, but 
will doing X be safer than Y? And does it need to be done in this way? And I think that it was an extreme version of the risk benefit analysis that we're doing every day in terms of the choices that we make for our kids and around our health. It's tough. It's tough to get that clarity while also having nuance. So I wish I had sort of a magical answer for that. But I think the broad strokes are very clear. And then in terms of the individual decisions that are made, everybody's family is different. So it's hard to know when to say like, well, this isn't working for me. This thing that is the recommended thing to do is actually seeming to damage my family. It's not easy, especially now. It kind of makes me think of your earlier point, which is just you're not necessarily thinking about this or you shouldn't maybe think about it in a vacuum with all of this just large amounts of information, like you called it a fire hose of information coming to you with social media and different ways of getting information today and just picking and choosing and finding a few resources that you feel like are really resonant with you, your community and the values that you have. And then trusting sort of your gut in terms of what you said about, does this make you feel like you're content in your life or does it give you stress? And if it gives you stress and makes you anxious, maybe second opinion or finding another place to get information. Right. And I mean, that's the, always the advice I give people when they ask me about social media and parenting. It's really just picking a few people, influencers, experts that you trust. And if you are finding anyone is making you feel bad about yourself, the way you look, the way you do X, Y, and Z, just stop following them. It is not mandatory. I mean, the way that I handled it with my older daughter, so this was now 2012, and so social media wasn't even what it is now. Instagram was just getting started. But I tried to look at parenting stuff online as little as possible. If I had a question, I would ask my mother or my pediatrician, and I had one book, and it was the Mayo Clinic's Guide to Your Child's First Year. And it got me through. And it really prevented me from... That dread is 3 a.m. rabbit hole of Google. I'm not going to say I never did that because it's irresistible. It can be. But in general, I was able to satisfy my curiosity. And then if it seems, you know, specifically medical, I will ask my pediatrician. I love it. And I appreciate those really bite-sized action items for something we could do right now is just find one or two trusted resources, find some simple messages that make sense in your life, and keep moving until you feel like you need more information and then repeat that cycle again. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciated the conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We've talked with Jessica Gross who is hoping to release us from some of these decisions that we're making with so much high stress energy. And I loved the takeaway about really just finding a few sources of information and recognizing that not every decision we make is the end of the world, whether it's health or otherwise. To find more information about Jessica Gross, visit jessicagross.com, where you can subscribe to her New York Times newsletter. You can also read her book, which is Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. You can find her on Instagram at Jess Gross Writes and Twitter at Jess Gross. 
Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Bhattak for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. 